Hi, this is Alex Romanovich, and welcome to the January 6, 2021 edition of Global Edge Talk. Today, we have an amazing guest, Daniel Eisenberg. Hello, Daniel. Hello. How are you, Alex? I'm going to uh, introduce Daniel very quickly. Um, uh, our audience knows that we also will have a landing page, and we'll have a lot of information about our guest, but uh, Daniel Eisenberg is the author of uh, a book on a global entrepreneurship. We'll talk about that. He's the CEO of Entrepreneurship Policy Advisors, uh, who launched a number of ecosystem projects uh, and came up with the, a, a notion of scale-up ecosystem. We'll talk more about that. He is a former professor and the current adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at Babson and Columbia Business School. Uh, he's the author of a very interesting, relevant and to a certain extent, controversial article at uh, Harvard Business Review on global entrepreneurship. He is an indiv individual investor. We have a lot to learn from Daniel and have a lot to talk about. Daniel, welcome to our studio. Thank you, Alex. Fun to be here even virtually. Yes, yes. I'm a very excited about this because um, as I started to look up the term <coughs> global entrepreneur, um, I, which I, I'm totally fascinated with, and I think, you know, we can certainly be relevant about this in, in our conversation. I, in my search, I came up with Daniel Eisenberg. So it, it really piqued my interest. And I started reading your article. I started reading your book excerpts. Sure enough, uh, you, uh, back in 2010, even 10, 000, uh, 2006, excuse me, you've coined a lot of very interesting, uh, terms and phrases and actually then executed on a lot of those notions. Please tell us about the book and tell us about the term global entrepreneur. Well, okay, those are, those are two separate and interrelated topics. Uh, the book Worthless, Impossible, and Stupid is a journey through the, um, through the, through the, the world, let's say, uh, through the eyes of entrepreneurs in many, many different countries, uh, Lebanon, Israel, um, uh, Denmark and uh, many other places. And it takes the perspective of entrepreneurs who are not necessarily focused on the United States as either the source of capital or the target for their products and services. There's a lot of opportunity, a lot of economic activity outside the United States. But until I wrote the book and until I wrote the article, um, most of the attention uh, in the field of entrepreneurship was on the United States as sort of the be-all and end-all, the gold standard. And of course, within the United States, two areas, Boston, uh, what was then the Route 128 and Silicon Valley. Boston's, uh, I think, undeservedly, its, it's, it's star, star has faded a little bit. And now Silicon Valley is under attack. But even then, and it was clear to me that entrepreneurship was part of human society. It's a, it's a, it's a characteristic of, of when people congregate, which is natural for people. And it's been, it's as old as the, it's as old as human society. And so I, the book takes the perspective that entrepreneurship is something that people engage in. And now what is it? So there are many examples in the book, but there's also some theory that, that is drawn from those examples about w why entrepreneurship is based on value creation and value capture by the entrepreneur. We can get into that a little bit later. Um, and, and so in a sense, I think all entrepreneurship, uh, is best viewed from a from a global or a, let's say a, it's a decentralized uh, perspective. 
Um, fascinating, very relevant, I think, uh, because uh, as you correctly noted, Silicon Valley is uh, beginning to transform. It's becoming more of a, a, a concept now than rather than a, a geographic location. Uh, we now see Oracle moving out of Silicon Valley. We now see Tesla moving out of Silicon Valley. We now see a number of different uh, in, investors in the community moving out of Silicon Valley and so forth and so on. Uh, to add to this, Oh, but let me let me just interrupt for a second. This notion of Silicon Valley, you know, it's like one, it's a place, okay? It's kind of an ill-defined place, but it's a place. And then people say, well, no, it's not a place, the mindset. And then it becomes kind of a useless term. I mean, when you look at the valuable companies, Microsoft, I'm sorry, not a Silicon Valley company. <laughs> uh, Amazon, sorry, not a Silicon Valley company. So with all due respect to Silicon Valley, a lot is done outside of Silicon Valley. But still, people say, oh, well, that's Silicon valley light. Well, that's sort of hogwash. Right. Uh, totally agree. I mean, I always maintain that, you know, Silicon Valley can happen, quote unquote, Silicon Valley can happen anywhere in the world. Uh, and it's about ecosystems. It's about creating the yes. environment, creating the ecosystem. That's what you've been doing for a number of years in a number of countries all over the world, including the United States. Tell us more about Great. what is it like to set up or to uh, start an ecosystem? Well, it starts with a concept. And the concept is that entrepreneurship, it's not about starting a company. A lot of it can be. But that's not the definition of entrepreneurship. The definition of entrepreneurship is the creation of economic value. It can be non-economic value. But let's keep it simple. Let's just talk about the creation of economic value. And it's the capture of some of that value for the creator of that value. Um, and, and that's at the heart of what entrepreneurship is. And if you take that, and that's in my book, we call that, I call that the value-based definition of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is value, uh, creation, and capture. It's, it, there's a few other words in there as well, but let's keep it, again, keep it simple. If you look at entrepreneurship as value creation and capture, it has to be about growth. If you're not growing, value, value creation means growth. If you're not growing, it's not entrepreneurship. So uh, wonderful that it sounds very nice. Entrepreneurs get an A for effort. Well, they don't. They get an A for growth. Uh, now, it may take a few misses before you get growth, but if you keep missing and don't get the growth, then it's not entrepreneurship. So if you keep in mind the notion that, that growth is what is at the heart of entrepreneurship, and then you say, well, what kind of growth? Uh, when you look at it from a regional perspective, there's an argument and some research that says that broad-based prosperity can be better achieved sustainably when more and more local firms, there's a broad base of firms growing more rapidly. In other words, there's a growth trajectory. doesn't matter that it's a 1,000% growth or 1% growth, but more and more firms growing more and more rapidly. That leads eventually to broader base prosperity and other benefits. So with that goal or objective, and it's very important. I know it sounds a little bit like wordsmithing or maybe a little academic, but it's a very powerful uh, organizing principle. And then if you go into a specific region and say, okay, what we're trying to do is create an environment, a system, a set institutions, programs, culture, and no less important, the examples of more and more local firms going more and more rapidly, then you will eventually get, and in a relatively uh, 
rapid, in economic development terms, relatively rapidly, you will get a broader base of, of prosperity. Uh, and that's what we do. We, we create the system. Now, there are ways I can go into the methodology that's probably beyond the scope of this podcast, but we have hardened methodologies for working with local leaders of all kinds. That's just government, working with a, a spectrum of local leaders to say, okay, how do we uh, cr create the ecosystem? And that's the term that I popularize, the entrepreneurship ecosystem, so that more local firms will grow. Uh, fascinating, and we'll definitely come back to that uh, concept. I've been involved with a couple of projects um, um, uh, to assist, you know, at the country or region level in countries like Finland and Ukraine and uh, UK and so forth. So we'll come back to that topic maybe at a, at a future uh, recording. Um, uh, another question, you know, let's enter 2020, the year of 2020. We're in 2021. We're already in 2021. Well, you know, let's go back to 2020. Because <laughs> I'd rather not. <laughs> this is, yeah, I'd rather not as well, but I think we have an interesting topic to discuss. And the question is, what has happened to the entrepreneurship after COVID-19 hit the entire world? What well, have happened to the entrepreneurs, to the ecosystems, and what can we expect in 2021? Okay. Well, in a sense, everything and nothing. So let me start with the nothing. Entrepreneurs are, are used to dealing with adversity. Adversity is intrinsic in the concept of entrepreneurship because you enter into a market or, uh, or create product market fit that didn't exist before. And that's almost never accompanied by applause and cheering and purchases. You have to work hard. It's kind of like pushing the ball up the hill, right? You have to work hard to get that ball up. As you probably know from your own experience, entrepreneurship is, is as one of my friends and all subject in, in the book, says entrepreneurship is tough, bloody, S-H, bleep, bleep. And it is. That's intrinsic. And you're always dealing with surprises, with stresses, with crises. And occasionally, it takes off and goes really well. And that's also kind of a crisis in a lot of ways. So in that sense, there's nothing new at all for entrepreneurs. It's just more and happening faster, um, more discontinuously. On the other hand, there are a lot of things that have changed. Of course, markets are they're behaving in a very strange way. Uh, but in many of the markets have, have collapsed. Uh, some of the markets have really taken off. I don't think that's changed fundamentally the process of entrepreneurship. One thing that's become very clear, and I think it's because it's just accelerated so quickly, is the absolute necessity. It's not a choice anymore. Every company needs to have a digital strategy because that's part of resilience. That's changed because the companies that don't or didn't have a uh, digital strategy, some presence that can be uh, creating value through digital presence, um, they had either were wiped out immediately or were wiped out slowly or severely, severely handicapped and maybe are making their way out of it. So that's one thing that's changed. Uh, the second thing that's changed, and this gets into global entrepreneurship a little bit, is that, and, and again, it's not, not really new. It's, it's new because it happens so, so quickly. And that is the transition to a remote, a world in which you can conclude things, get business done, engage in social activity and all kinds of activity remotely. That was happening anyway. Uh, 
But telemedicine, for example, or the fact that we're having this this podcast with Zoom in the back, you know, and using Zoom, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you all know, and the teach education that's taking place, uh, the business taking place, venture capitalists are closing deals without meeting people face to face. That's that that was that's anathema. That's against the rules up until now. So all these things are changes. I don't think they change fundamentally the process, but they change the way it it it, it plays itself out. Um, I totally agree. I mean, we'll remember 2020 for for the for a very long time. That's for sure. Um, so, what can we expect in 2021? Can we, can we expect well, I don't know if I if I don't have a very clear crystal ball, and anybody who does, I think, is looking is probably has to wake up. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we think that. We all, there seems to be a consensus out there that sometime during the year of 2021, uh, the pandemic will be less dominant, maybe even disappear largely as a, as a factor. But I think we're going to be dealing with the fallout of the pandemic for many, many years to come, kind of like a post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. And uh, so some of the industries that started to take off uh, in 2020 well, they're going to keep taking off, but maybe more slowly. I think some of the industries that collapsed, such as airlines and hotels, are, they may they may see a renaissance. We don't know. Retail and, and um, hospitality, et cetera, may see some kind of renaissance. But still, with the caveat that everyone, and, and healthcare is a good example, is going to have to have a stronger uh, way of carrying out business, carrying out its activities digitally. So other than that, it's clear that China, it's clear to me anyway, that China is emerging as a big winner because it uh, dealt with the crisis, the pandemic, with extreme efficiency and uh, conviction and unity as in, as composed to the United as opposed to the United States, it's clear that um, that China at least for a while is going to benefit, and not just China. I think I think it's Japan and Korea, Taiwan. All of these countries uh, took the pandemic very seriously and um, and in, in implemented social the social controls necessary to control the pandemic. Not perfectly, but better than a lot of other countries. And because of that, the economic activity is rebounding more quickly. Let's talk a little bit about our country, United States. Um, you've helped a number of regions set up an ecosystem for entrepreneurship. You have uh, global experience. Is there anything that's different about the United States in comparison to other regions, other countries that you can talk about in terms of setting up uh, the ecosystem the response, the opportunity across the entire country? Well, yes and no. I mean, in, uh, the United States remains a very open society. And that openness um, is extremely conducive to entrepreneurship of all kinds. So that's, uh, I think that's, that's a tremendous advantage and still makes the United States largely the, the destination for entrepreneurs who, who want to be successful. On the other hand, I think the United States suffers, I think a lot of countries do, but the United States maybe a little more than, than others. We suffer from hubris. We suffer from pride. We suffer from thinking that we are the be all, the end all, the, the guiding light. I think it's clear now that politically that's not true. Uh, but I think also in, from the perspective of entrepreneurship and we have to be careful. We meaning as a society, we have to be careful about letting this get go to our heads because 
we're going to be we're going to be um, uh, bypassed if we're not careful. We need a little bit more humility and a little bit more uh, sense of uh, perspective. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book to show that there's a lot happening out there outside of the United States. We are Silicon Valley and the United States are not the guiding lights that we think they are. And there was a lot that we can learn from entrepreneurs in other countries. I, I totally agree. Um, let's, let me switch to a different topic, something that um, could be interesting to talk about. And that's, topic, that's a topic of age. When we talk about entrepreneurs, and the perception is always young, energetic, uh, in their 20s, in their 30s maybe, uh, startup, you know, there, there are a few other phrases that come to mind. And yet, um, we're seeing a lot of the, you know, very wealthy entrepreneurs uh, that have been successful, um, you know, in their more advanced age, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s even. Um, let's talk a little bit about the age and whether you feel, you think, that a success will come to those with experience and knowledge versus um, uh, youth, energy, and you know, mistakes, and, you know, we always say that, you know, the, the, the faster you fail, the faster you succeed, you know, and so forth and so on. What is your opinion about that? First of all, about failure, the faster you succeed, the faster you succeed. Failure is a byproduct of success. It's not a cause of success. Let's not, let's not celebrate failure nearly as much as we celebrate success. We get in trouble with that one. An entrepreneur who fails 10 times is not a better entrepreneur than one who fails once and then succeeds. I totally agree, except so, that our society so. promotes that, as you know, you know, Let's fail. Let's fail five times. Let's I think that's silly. That's silly. It's silly. And I think part of it that people just get confused between, well, there's, there's, a, there's a serious part of it. People get confused between making mistakes and, and catastrophic failure. Making mistakes is normal. You don't want to make mistakes. Just don't, go, don't get out of bed in the morning. Um, but failure is a different story. So, um, but about, about age... It's interesting. I've thought a lot about that, and I'm obviously biased because the older I get, the older I get, right? Uh, but I've always thought that youth is overrated. Uh, the only thing different about youth as, as regards to entrepreneurship is you have a longer runway, and you probably have less to lose when you're young. But as you hinted, the evidence is that middle-aged entrepreneurs simply do better on the average than young entrepreneurs. Young entrepreneurs are lacking experience. They're lacking perspective. They're, they get overwhelmed by passion and they, they have trouble looking at things with, uh, with objectivity. Um, you know, passion is also something that I think is overrated. You need commitment and energy. Passion, if you look at the root of that word, it has to do with insanity. And it, when you look at the etymology of the word passion. And so, uh, and so, uh, of course, the older you get, then you may have a little less drive, but you may have just as much. You do have more perspective. You do have a, a worse memory, but you use the, inf this is the research. I'm, by the way, I'm a psychologist by background, and that's my academic training. You, you, you use that information more effectively. You're less emotional about that information. So I definitely, and, and then there are huge numbers of examples of successful entrepreneurship at older ages. Very interesting uh, topic. Uh, we'll come back to it a little bit later. Um, you know, our audience is uh, global. Uh, the folks in the large organizations, enterprises, 
chief marketing officers, managing directors, and financial institutions. We also have scale-ups and startups uh, in China, in Finland, in Russia, in Europe, Israel, and so forth and so on. Welcome, so we welcome. Have, we have a very diverse audience all over the globe. Um, what is your one single piece of advice going forward for uh, mavericks inside of uh, large organizations or government agencies or folks that are waking up in the morning in India, in Africa, thinking, wow, you know, what am I supposed to do now with COVID and post-COVID? I still have a dream. I still want to pursue it. What is your one single piece of advice? Well, my, I have two pieces of advice. Yeah, let's go with, go with two. The first piece of advice is don't listen to advice. Okay. You ha- okay. the, world, the, the world of entrepreneurship is, is, of course, it helps to listen to the experts but, and people who know a lot. But the history of entrepreneurship is of people doing things that, that smart people think are worthless. That's the title of my book, Worthless, Impossible, and Stupid. Almost all of the six really successful ventures, when they started out, uh, when they were first conceived, very, very smart people thought that they were the worst thing in the world to do and would never succeed. So uh, that doesn't mean that everything. So, so if, if, if everyone thinks it's a great idea, probably it isn't. If, if you have one or two, at least really, really good detractors, smart detractors, then maybe it is a good idea, a really, really good idea. On the other hand, if, you know, if everybody, if you're at a party and everybody thinks you're drunk, you probably should hand over the keys to somebody else, regardless of what you think. So there are such things as really bad ideas. But, uh, but the, the blending, to come back to this notion of passion, the ability to blend two very contradictory processes, I think, is, is one of the elements of effective entrepreneurship. And these two elements, I call them the oil and water because they don't mix. And one of them is the belief, the conviction that, what you, that something that doesn't exist today will be very valuable in the future. Call it passion, if you will, vision, whatever you want to call it. But it's, it's something that isn't reality today will be very valuable on the one hand. On the other hand, the ability to look very objectively and very um, cold, cool-headedly at the facts, at what's going on and continually to question what you're doing. Is it the right thing? Uh, the ability to blend those two, and they think they're fundamentally contradictory processes, is essential for successful entrepreneurship. And, um, you know, someone called it, I think it was Nubara Fayan called it paranoid optimism. Uh, so that's, that's my piece of advice. You know, we could go into specific. I don't think that's related to COVID in particular. And again, I don't think I have any particular advice other than you need a digital strategy. That's more COVID related. And, uh, and welcome to the world. If, if you can do something in the COVID era, let's say, then you're going to be a pretty strong uh, when things get a little bit better. Speaking of digital strategy for organizations, that, you know, large and small, uh, entering this post-COVID environment, do you think that this can be a templated approach as well? In other words, you know, if you're a small business, if you're a restaurant, um, there are certain ways for you to pursue success in the post-COVID environment. If you're a financial institution, if you're a manufacturer, if you're a logistics or you know distribution company, do you think that someone like yourself or other organizations can actually uh, craft or create a templated-based approach? 
Well, again, I think entrepreneurship to some extent or to maybe a large extent defies templating because it's, it's when you have a template and then the entrepreneur comes and says, you know what, I can do it differently and does it differently, breaks the template, so to speak. That's, that's really where you unlock a lot of value. But um, a former student of mine who's became a very successful entrepreneur and executive in his own right, Eric Schultz, Eric B. Schultz, uh, and I wrote an article in April, I think it was, in Medium, which I encourage people to read, and those are the new opportunities in the pandemic. And we identified some real fundamental drivers that are going to be long-lasting, if not permanent, such as the ability to have, be safe yet, you know, physically safe yet socially together, we're called PAST, and being flexible, flexibility of supply chains of all kinds is part of resilience, the ability to be flexible in, let's say, manufacturing or logistics, that flexibility is going to be a premium going forward. And the ability to do things remotely, we identify five of these drivers. And so I think it's useful to look at those. That's in medium under Eisenberg and Schultz. You talk a lot about value-based entrepreneurship, value-based investment. Yes. Let's talk a little bit more about this uh, because I think it's an important topic. And I think the investment community, the entrepreneurial community is beginning to listen, is beginning to pay attention. What is value-based entrepreneurship? Tell us more. So by your question, I can see that I need to clarify what I mean by value-based. And I don't what I don't mean is I don't mean the social values or uh, shared value. That's not what I'm referring to. That's, I think, a different conversation. Okay. I'm very happy to uh, direct entrepreneurship, and this is a little bit unpopular these days, out of, out of fashion, but I think it's there anyway, only to the creation of economic value. I don't think it's contradictory with social value, quite the opposite. I think the creation of economic value gives something called economic freedom. And economic freedom leads to social freedom. So that's overly simplistic also. But I think it's useful. I think most societies around the world will say, you know what? Let's first of all achieve within a set of rules, within a set of ethics, within a set of obeying the being... um, obeying of the, the, what's important to our society, whether it's rules or norms, let's create economic value and let's get as many local firms as possible to grow more and more rapidly. I think many, many societies say, you know what, let's first accomplish that. That will give us optionality. That will give us the resources, the strength to be able to then say, okay, now let's Let's use those through taxes or other purposes or other means. Let's use those to achieve other kinds of non-economic social value. The successful entrepreneurship as a region allows you to achieve or solve other problems, not perfectly, but more easily. Um, Great, great topics. Uh, I can see that uh, we must invite you back uh, for some subsequent discussions and so forth. One more last topic to discuss. We have large cities in the United States. We have large cities um, in in other countries uh, that are getting uh, smaller and smaller now post-COVID. We see movement, geographic movement. We see movement based on social unrest uh, and and so forth. Um, What is your advice to the mayor of New York City, to the mayor of San Francisco, to the mayor of uh, Chicago, Dallas and a few other places that are seeing this uh, movement 
that basically says, okay, um, we are losing our tax base. We're losing our corporations. We're losing um, our you know, support structure. What should we do? What shall we do next? Well, first of all, I think that's too big a question for me. Um, I'm not the mayor of New York, and I don't know if I would, I'm sure I would not be a good mayor of New York, and I, and I don't know what it's like being the mayor of New York. Um, but I don't think that, I, I think this is primarily a temporary phenomenon, that I don't think they have anything in the long run to worry about um, the cities emptying out in kind of like a Will Smith uh, dystopian movie. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I think this is happening around the margins. And there are short-term problems that I think the mayors, certainly in the United States, have to deal with, which has a lot to do with the pandemic. And I think the aftershocks of the pandemic are going to be hugely significant. The people will come back. Um, eventually, there'll be more and more economic activity, creating a better, bigger tax base. The truth is that cities are wonderful places to get a lot of things done. Now, it doesn't have to be New York. It can also be, uh, it can also be Worcester, Massachusetts. By the way, I'm a huge fan of what you could call the, the mid-tier cities. I think that they're underrated. They're, you know, in Massachusetts, we have this, we have Boston which is, let's say, two-thirds of the economy and two-thirds of the population, if you look at greater Boston, of Massachusetts. And in a very strange um, uh, nod to the cities such as Springfield and Worcester, who are, which are outside of Boston, they're in the west of Massachusetts, or New Bedford, which is in the south. Well, they call these gateway cities, which is really unfortunate because they're not gateways. These are cities that have economic activity that are in and of themselves valuable. They're not gateways to anywhere. They are destinations and can be destinations. So I think regardless of the pandemic, there is huge, huge amounts of social economic value to be unleashed in the, what I call the normal cities, the non-elite cities, the Akron, Ohio's, and the Columbus, Ohio's, and the Albuquerque, Mexico's, and so on and so forth. And this is without, uh, without criticizing the Bostons and the New Yorks and, and let's say now the San Francisco's and Seattle's. These are great places and they always will be great places. But there's tremendous amounts of value in the smaller cities. Daniel, it's been a tremendous pleasure to have you as our guest. We definitely want to invite you back to talk about some of these uh, topics in, in more detail. And we wish you lots of luck and uh, would love to, uh, you know, would love to continue this conversation. Um, I want to say that uh, our landing page about you on our website is going to have a lot of information uh, about the book, about the HBR article, about, um, uh, you know, it's all available on, on, on Amazon and Audible. So we're, we're very happy uh, about having you on our program and would love to continue. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure.